All right, so uh, we're going to talk now about repentance, and I'd like to read a verse, and then we'll pray. This verse uh, will be, I was going to say huge, but I, now I realize that's a technical term for something on the internet, but um, this will loom large uh, this morning for us. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Some of you probably were maybe thinking of this passage already. Uh, when you were looking at the, the topic for today, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, these words teach us that there is grief, and then there is grief. And we desire the right sort of grief as we think upon our sin. And we're surrounded by a world uh, that is constantly pushing forward self-help. Every sort of conference, every sort of method, every new gimmick that would say to us that we can heal ourselves. And Father, we desire to come to the the great physician himself and to be healed by him. To do that, Father, we need to understand, again, this this aspect of our heart uh, that mourns when we sin. Help us to understand it rightly, Father. Lead us now, we ask by your spirit. May those things that are truly of you uh, cling to our hearts. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When Augustine died. Uh, When he was dying, he requested uh, that the six penitential psalms would be posted in large script upon the walls in the room in which he was lying so that he could see them put in very large letters uh, so he could read them uh, again and again and again. And I'm not suggesting that's the way one should die, but I think it does say something to us Uh, that one of the greatest theologians that's ever lived. Imagine writing theology and your theology dominates the church for a thousand years. And you begin to comprehend this man, Augustine, who wrote more than a million words. He did not have Microsoft Word. Uh, A man wrote with a quill, and and what he wrote was fantastic. And um, one of my teachers, mentors, said that the Puritans did not see themselves first and foremost as Calvinists. They saw themselves first and foremost as Augustinians. So Augustine is huge for us, and there's much of what we're doing in this that is ultimately can be traced back to his theology and his strong emphasis upon grace and his understanding of sin as he um, countered the Pelagians. And we come to a a very important matter as we we think of the the desires of the heart and when those desires are are being um, affected by sin and when our desires are engaged in a, in a very godly way uh, towards sorrow. What are, we, what are we talking about? And so I'd like to first clue you into our standards and how they are picking up again with biblical language. And so you saw this phrase and, or heard this phrase in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly grief. And so in the Shorter Catechism 87, it says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin doth with grief and hatred of his sin turned from it unto God. Larger Catechism, 
76 uses the same phrase, that he grieves for and hates his sin. Or the confession, chapter 15, too, grieves for and hates his sin. It's simply uh, taking the language of Scripture. And in fact, if you look at the shorter catechism and the larger catechism, especially in their expositions of the Ten Commandments, it's, it's bibline. You can prick it anywhere and it bleeds Scripture. It's just lift, simply lifting up the, the language of Scripture. And that's what we get here as well. Now, this is what we would expect if what we saw in the former session is true, and that if repentance involves the entire heart, then that means that repentance needs to go all the way to the bottom, however you want to think of that. It needs to go all the way down where it's really impacting what we could call the mushy stuff, that it's impacting our emotions, that repentance is much more than just sheer intellect. It's more than just knowing that I sinned. I know I sinned because the Bible tells me I sinned. Of course it's that. But repentance is more than that. It's more than just a consciousness of sin. What we're talking about is what some call a moral consciousness of sin. It's not just knowing that I sin. It's how it feels when I sin. What it feels like to fail another person, to disappoint my parents or, or a good friend, or to wrong somebody that I love and to see that pain upon their, their face. And it, and it impacts me. That means something to me. And that's what repentance is. It feels sorrow for its sin. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church about um, a relationship that is incestuous in nature. Uh, so it's sexual immorality. And he says to this church, you are arrogant about this. And we can suppose, and I, we're speculating a little bit here, that they're arrogant in the sense that uh, they are boastful, as they often are about many things, that our community is so inclusive we can even embrace this couple that's, in, that's involved in this incestuous relationship. And he said, should you be arrogant? Should you not rather be mourning? This very same idea. Should you not be grieving that this, is, this immorality is taking place in your, in your life? And so it's saying that uh, repentance, what, what he's saying and, and what their standards are saying, what Second Corinthians is saying, there's a sense in which this, this grief is, is accompanying uh, repentance. You, he, the way he puts it is that grief leads to repentance. I'm not sure we have to think in terms of a strict chronology. But we could definitely say this, this grief is essential to repentance. It's a, it's a crucial, vital aspect to repentance. Now, what that grief looks like is going to be different. For some of us, are more emotional, right? And if we're crying all the time, they're going to think that we're, that's a really repentant Christian. And there's some people that, that do not express their emotion outwardly that way, but within, in their heart, it's a storm that's taking place. And they're profoundly emotional. They just don't express it that way. So there's a lot of latitude that we need to give to one another in terms of the way in which you and I are constituted. Um, I cry over a TV commercial. Uh, that's how sentimental I am. Well, that's not godliness. You know, I'm a sap. That's what that means. And there's some people that have been incredibly impacted. Something life-changing just took place. No tears, no, no change in facial expression. Now, that's odd for some of us, but that's, that's what happens with some Christians. So there needs to be a lot of grace that we give to one another. But Scripture is saying we ought to be feeling something. And doesn't mean we have to feel it every day, every time we repent, but this ought to be a regular occurrence. That when we're on our knees repenting before God, 
or when we're together, gathered together, when we're repenting of our sin uh, corporately, that it's impacting us. But we have to understand what kind of sorrow this is. Paul is saying here, this is a grief that leads to life. Now, you can see how important that phrase is because it's, it's actually the title to Confession chapter 15, Repentance unto Life. And you think, that's a strange way to put it. It's very purposeful. And it's coming out of 2 Corinthians 7, and which is coming out of Scripture, Acts 11, 18. Is when somebody hears this message about the impact the gospel's making to these Gentiles, how the, the, the word of God is running to them, it says, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's, that's right out of 2 Corinthians 7 as well. In other words, this is a sorrow that's not sad about life. It's, this is not a sorrow that's a sign of depression. That's a totally different thing. Right? And, and the Puritans understood this. They talked about how some Christians struggled, what they called it melancholy. That there's some Christians that there's a constant life struggle with depression. That's different. That's not what we're talking about. And this is not the sort of moroseness that a person feels about life in general. This is the sort of sorrow that comes from clarity. A deeper appreciation about what life is and where repentance leads, where this, this will go. And that's why he says this is the salvation without regret. This is when you clear the slates. This is where the, the books have been wiped clean. It's that sort of freedom that comes that when you unburden yourself before God and, and, you, and you get up from that time on your knees refreshed and feel clean. Do we always have that feeling? No. But it's that sort of thing where I don't care who knows that I've, I've confessed my sin. If it's another person that I've, that I've harmed and wronged, I've gone to them and said, I'm sorry for, for what I did. And I'm not expecting them necessarily to, to say something back. And you've experienced that before. It's kind of a sign of something dis disingenuous. And they come to you and, and they say, well, I'm sorry for the fact that you were offended by but what I tried to say so delicately and gently and in Christian love, then they go, and they're waiting for you, you know, to confess that you're the real problem in this situation, right? Well, that's not being very genuine. Repentance is, I don't care what comes out of your mouth afterwards. I just need to tell you I'm wrong because I've sinned against you and against God. I need to make this right. And I want no regrets that way. And that's why this is the grief that has hope. I pointed this out the other day in Matthew 5, 4, where Christ says, blessed are those who mourn. That does not make any sense. Happy are those who are sad. I mean, that's what he's saying. But now you think this is the way our Savior often taught. The first will be last. He who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs> All these paradoxes. They're not paradoxes. He's speaking in these, in these ways to get your attention, but what he's saying, blessed are those who when they look within and what they see, it causes them to mourn. And he's talking about this very thing. And it begins with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. In other words, they look in and they don't see spiritual riches. They don't see great moral excellence. What they see is impoverishment. They see, as Luther said when he died, we we're all beggars. This is true. They look within, they see what's there, they see what's not there, and that's what turns them out away from themselves to hunger and thirst for righteousness, because it's not in here. 
and they're forced outward. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing at, at that point anyway. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what he's saying there is that repentance is a blessing. This is a saving grace. This is a gift from God. He's not trying to put spin on it. This is the truth. This is a great blessing for every Christian who mourns over their sin. And the reason why uh, they know it's a blessing is that it has its sights on the mercy of God in Christ. We talked about this. It's that apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. It has its sights on what's coming. I have a true sense of my sin. This is knowledge again. But that knowledge also helps me to appreciate that there's a mercy of God in Christ that's promised to those who repent of their sin and who grieve over their sin. And so it's those who bear this sorrow Christ gives this promise they shall be comforted. So that's why there's this hope. But the reason a person feels this sorrow is because they've begun to appreciate, and we were getting at this yesterday a little bit, is that I've sinned against God. Remember again, Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and then what is evil in your sight. In other words, they're seeing this sin as an offense against God and his holy character. They're beginning to, to feel the weight of the fact that I've displeased him. In other words, this is personal, and it feels that way. When I'm telling the world and what I tell others is that this is the most important person in my life, and I just wronged him, what should that feel like? So that's why repentance can't be just mumbling the words and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, God. Is that repentance? It doesn't sound like it that when we have truly wronged and disappointed and failed, despite our promises of the contrary, somebody that we love, somebody that we enjoy, somebody who's important to us, it should feel this way. There is that shame and that embarrassment and that humiliation that we feel that God says, you're on the right track. This is exactly the way it's supposed to feel. In fact, we could put it this way. In scripture, repentance is colorful. What do I mean by that? I always love it when, when people say, I love it when C.S. Lewis says, we have forgotten how to blush, not realizing, actually, it's in the Bible. And, uh, and I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, but we need to give credit where it belongs. And this is one of the places where, where God shames his people through his prophet Jeremiah. He says, for after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth, this is a good thing, I'm sorry, these are the positive verses. Ezra 9, 6, O my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, O God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And so this is, now the negative verses are when, when God says they have lost their ability to blush, they've lost their ability to feel ashamed, they've become so hard-hearted that they're not able truly to repent. So. Let me give you this verse, Jeremiah 8, 12. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. And Ezra 9, 6 says the same thing. All of us have felt that embarrassment when you can feel the blood going to your face and you're as red as a tomato in your head and everybody can see it. It's a terrible feeling. Well, it's a godly, it's a godly countenance to be able to blush, to be able to know I've made a fool of myself. And so that's why in scripture, this kind of sorrow is often expressed in tears, obviously. 
or with fasting or tearing one's clothes, wearing sackcloth. You know this from the Bible. I'll just give you a couple of examples. King Josiah, when he, he was a good king, there are not many of them, but he was a good king. He loved God with all of his heart, brought about great reforms. And he heard the first reading of the book of the law he had ever heard, and he realized what Israel was guilty of. And he realized how far away they were from God. And it says he tore his clothes. And later on, a prophet was sent back to speak to Josiah and says, it might have been a priest, actually, I can't remember. And this is what God says to him. Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse and how you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Now, Joel 2, remember that passage, it says, rent your hearts, not just your clothes. But Josiah is doing both. What he did outwardly as a symbol was true, as a symbol of what was going on in his, his heart. Think of, of Peter when he had uh, denied our Lord the third time and he heard that rooster, rooster crowing. He ran from the garden weeping, Scripture says, overcome with that guilt. And so it's, it's this kind of sorrow that we feel for our sin. But the catechism and the confession also talks about having a hatred for our sin. Now, some people don't like this talk, and let's chat about it a little bit, but I think this too is, is an important indication of, of where we are with regard to our sin. Now, it's interesting, what I didn't read was the following verse or two where Paul speaks to these Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, and, <clears throat> and he is complimenting them for their repentance. And one of the things that he compliments and, and that he encourages is what happens uh, in light of the, their repentance, or we could say even the fruit of their repentance. In verse 11, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what indignation, that's that, that hatred, that anger. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. And what he's talking about is the same thing our confession means when it says that repentance is a, is a hatred towards our sin, not in ourselves in a way that is wrong or psychological or anything like that, but a hatred of our sin. And there's an abhorrence, there's a sort of disgust that we feel with ourselves, a repugnance towards what we've done. This is what Job said. Now remember, Job had not sinned against God in anything that he said. And yet when he is confronted by the transcendent God and he is reminded of his place and how small he is, he says this in Job 42.6, he says, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I despise myself. Ezekiel 36, 31, you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Matthew Henry put it this way. He says, true repentance wrought indignation at sin, at themselves, at the tempter and his instruments. It wrought a fear of watchfulness and a cautious fear of sin. It wrought desire to be reconciled with God. It wrought zeal for duty and against sin. It wrought revenge against sin and their own folly by endeavors to make satisfaction for injuries done thereby. Deep humility before God, hatred of all sin with faith in Christ, a new heart and a new life makes repentance unto salvation. And so what these passages are telling us is that repentance comes accompanying with this, this cadre of all of its friends, all these things that are its children, as it were, all of its bosom buddies that usually come accompanying with it. 
Uh, our OPC membership vow says this, and some people don't like this part of our vow. Do you confess that because of your sinfulness, you abhor and humble yourself before God, that you repent of your sin and that you trust for salvation, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ alone? And what some of our friends would say is that this part, you abhor yourself, it could communicate the wrong things. And I understand that. What it's saying is we have brothers and sisters in Christ who really struggle with self-hatred. They have a sort of feeling about themselves that is unhealthy and wrong. And that's not what this membership vow is saying. It puts it into context. It says because of your sinfulness. And this is why when you read some of the, uh, the giants in terms of worship like Hughes Oliphant Old, he says it's important when we confess our sins in corporate worship that we confess our sins but also confess our sinfulness. And so that's why it's so personal. It says in that vow that because of your sinfulness, and, and sin is personal. It's not just that I've sinned against a person. It's I, a person, am the one who committed this sin. And, and I, I hate myself when I do these things. And I do abhor myself. And I'm ashamed of myself. And I think that's what it's getting at. And it means to love righteousness is to hate sin. It's the same thing. To love Christ is to hate the things that Christ hates. And I need to have that sort of aversion to sin. Calvin puts it this, only Calvin talks like this. That man who has learned to detest himself has made much progress. <laughs> Calvin, he says these crazy statements. A man who's disgusted with himself, he's doing a good job. You know? But what he's talking about, the context of this, is this is this love and this zeal for, for Christ and his righteousness and his holiness and this great disappointment I feel in myself when I sin against him. It's very personal. It's meant to feel that way. And that's what that membership vow is saying. I think it's entirely biblical. But when people are critical of it, we can have some sympathy for what, what they're feeling. But that indignation is real. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, that, that indignation... That, that anger you feel towards yourself, that we did this thing, how wrong this was for us to wrong our brothers and sisters in Christ, how, how terrible it was for us to give this, this witness to the world. That's that indignation he's talking about. And he says that's it's kind of a taproot down to the heart, and it's showing us that down there there's this true zeal for Christ, that anger again. See, anger is so helpful. It's so interesting. I, I have a relative uh, I used to golf with on occasion, but I got tired of dodging flying clubs you know, that he would be so angry. But was he angry at me? Was he aiming the golf clubs at me? There was a couple of times I think he, he might have been doing that because I tend to talk too much on the golf course. But anyway, <laughs> but who is he mad at usually? Himself. He used to say terrible things about himself on the golf course. But it was all personal. This is exactly what he's talking about. This is what Paul's talking about. This fruit that shows that you're not happy with how you're doing. He said, this, this is good. And we need to keep fruit in keeping with repentance. Those are the words of John the Baptist. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3.8. There's a fruit that comes with godly grief. And that's what we were just looking at. It's, it's evident and it's proven in the emotions that are wrapped around this, this godly grief that's produced in you. What, what eagerness, indignation, what fear, what longing and zeal, uh, and what punishment. 
And it's, it's this sort of freedom that comes in these expressions of emotion um, attached with all these things. We see it with Hezekiah when he receives this distressing message from the Lord. It says, with tears he prayed and he looked for God's mercy. And think of how uh, David responded to uh, the, the prophet Nathan when he confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. And it says, he threw himself before God. And I think we can think of him literally casting himself upon the ground before God, that this was no mere gesture. This is the way David felt in his heart. And when he did the census, he knew he had done wrong. And he confessed that because um, he said, I had sinned greatly. Here's another example that I think <clears throat> is interesting with, uh, the, with uh, Mary. And I'll remind you of the, of the you'll, you'll be reminded of the stories I read the passage in Luke 7, 36. Christ is eating at the table of the Pharisee, Pharisee's home. And he says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Then Jesus, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And you see what he's saying, that, that expression of love is a good measure how, where she felt she was as a sinner before the true and living God, getting some sense of who this was, that this is the Messiah, this is the one who could atone for her sin. In some way, she knew something about that comes and does this kind of clumsy thing that the disciples criticized, that this, this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. And Christ rebukes them and said, what she's done is a beautiful thing. It's in all four Gospels. It even says that wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. This is one of the most beautiful things we have done to Christ recorded in the gospels. It's a picture of repentance. We see what repentance is like. We can feel the heaviness in this room, surrounded by men, probably feeling so uncomfortable and awkward, and yet Christ praises her and said, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful thing. So we see something of the sincerity of repentance and the fruit of it and, and this emotion that, that comes. Secondly, in terms of the fruit of repentance, we would say repentance is specific. It should be specific. In the Confession of Faith, 15.5, it says that we should endeavor to repent of particular sins, particularly, to be specific. Why is that important? Because repentance wants to come clean. It doesn't mitigate its stories, doesn't make excuses or anything like that. It comes clean. Voss says, no, I'm sorry, we'll get to that in a second. Think of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Think of how Paul describes himself, like in 1 Timothy 1.13, even though I was once a blasphemer, 
and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Most Christians have prayed that prayer and said the same about themselves as well. Thomas Watson has written a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. I would encourage you to to read it. Uh, Watson is one of those Puritans that's very, very clear. He doesn't try to turn too many phrases in a row. Uh, He's very accessible. And he says this, he says, a wicked man acknowledges he is a sinner in general. He's not specific. And I'm not gonna name names, but there was a high-ranking politician several years ago and it was despite his initial protest, it was discovered that he indeed had had an affair. And here was his statement, I'm not a perfect man. Oh wow, that was really penetrating and heartfelt. Adolf Hitler could have said that. I'm not a perfect man. And see, that's what the confession is talking about. That's how an unbeliever talks. That's how a person who's completely blind to their spiritual state talks. No, a Christian is very particular. This is what I've done. And so that's why the confession encourages us to be specific. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to do that in public all the time, right? That can become a form of transparency that's really kind of self-promotional. And that can become a false humility. A friend of mine was complimenting a minister who, on a regular basis, confessed his sins in the pulpit and said, oh, that's so humble. And I said, perhaps. It's kind of selfish, too. Nobody else gets to do that. So we have to be careful about that and be discreet. But when you are alone in your closet, where, and that Christ encourages us to do that, we never try to pray in such a way to be heard. That's exactly what he criticizes. But he says, go in your closet, close the door. God's already there. He's waiting for you. And you can tell him anything you want. And you should be specific. It's not like you're informing him. Somebody had on his website, has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? He knows it. He sees it. You're just agreeing with him and coming clean. Thirdly, repentance is lifelong. So I'm going to quote Gerhardus Voss. So if he said it, it means it's right and you can't question me. The Christian needs to die daily in repentance and make alive in faith and be made alive in faith. The old man must be crucified anew again and again so that the new man can arise with all the more power. Thomas Watson said, trust sorrow, true sorrow must be habitual. O Christian, the disease of your soul is chronic and frequently returns upon you. Therefore, you must be continually physicking, physicking yourself by repentance. Physic, you know, physicianal type of thing. You know, okay, never mind. It's not worth it. Uh, healing yourself, you want to put it that way. But most importantly, this is what Christ says in Luke 9.23. He says, if anybody wants to follow me, he has to deny himself and take up his cross daily. This is a daily thing. It's a daily task of dying to sin. It's by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body so that we will live, Romans 8.13. But this is the daily task of taking up our cross. This is one of the ways in which we do so. And, and I think, you know, am I going to say that you should have a, you know, some sort of like Excel sheet at home and to make sure that within every 24-hour period that you've repented? Is that the idea? The idea this is habitual. You can't help yourself. This is like the air that you breathe, repentance and faith. That's part of what we're talking about in this time together. 
And so these, these things, I think, are, are extremely important in, in terms of uh, the way that we feel about sin and the fact that uh, the sincerity is many times evidenced by emotion. Secondly, that our repentance should be specific, but also it should be daily as a lifelong task. And this is part of the reason why Luther talked about repentance unto life. He was contrasting that with penitence. The idea that I go to a priest one time and I'm good. Oh, that's, that happens early in my life as a Christian, and therefore I don't have to worry about it again. He said, no, this is a saving grace. This is habitual. Again, this is the air that you and I breathe. We're well acquainted with this. And if, in fact, let me just say this just very quickly uh, because of uh, how much time do I have left? Oh, that's six minutes, right? Okay, I don't have time to say that. Never mind. Uh, now, this is very important, and I have to be a little bit quick, but we have to get this in. But what about worldly grief? How is that different from godly grief? And Paul talks about that here in 2 Corinthians 7, 10. He says, worldly grief produces death. Well, what's interesting is that worldly grief, it comes with emotion as well. There's people of the world uh, that can feel really bad about what they've done, but not for the right reasons. Hebrews 12, 17 talks about Esau and how he lost his birthright. He says, and you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so that's why we can't be superficial in our judgment. Oh, that person's crying. Oh, they're obviously repenting. Maybe not. And see, this is why the larger catechism says that we, have, we, we're not, we don't have a true sense of sin unless we see it. It's an offense against God. Again, it's personal. And not only out of a sense of its danger. That's what we talked about a little bit yesterday. Not just seeing the danger of sin. But that's, a, that's exactly why some people shed tears. Because they, they got caught. And they regret that. Or it's a person who feels shame that they brought upon themselves. But they don't feel the dishonor that they brought upon God. You see it's been disassociated from God. It's now something more selfish. Or they fear the consequences of sin. Philip Hughes puts it this way, it's not sorrow because of the heinousness of sin as rebellion against God, but sorrow because of the painful and unwelcome consequences of sin. Sin is itself, is its central point. In other words, it feels the pain of sin, not the offense of sin. And that's why worldly grief is ultimately self-centered and it feels self-pity. It's about the pain that the sin caused me, not what it caused God. And that's why worldly grief many times will not even own the sin. It feels defensive, makes excuses, blames others. Think of Saul. He was told you need to wipe out these Amalekites. This was something God said in Deuteronomy to Moses. We must never forget that. We need to wipe out these people because what they did against Israel was so treacherous. And Saul was commanded to do this. He failed in his command. And when Samuel confronts us about this, what does Saul do? He minces his words. He explains it away. He blames the people. He becomes highly defensive. It's all bad. It's not repentance at all. And the first example of this is, is when Adam is confronted by God. What does he do? He blames his, blames his wife. Now, no husband has ever done that since. But he's not just blaming Eve indirectly. He's blaming God. He said, this woman that you gave me, I mean, this was your idea, God. That's worldly grief. And people with worldly grief will even resolve not to sin. But again, not for the right reasons. It's because the sin was painful. 
Somebody has said impulsive resolutions are not trustworthy. They are raised in a storm but will die in a calm. Real repentance is sad for the offense. False repentance is sad for the punishment. And worldly grief will even leave behind sinful ways. But again, not for the right reasons. They'll do it for prudence, not strength of grace. I'm running for Congress. I need to keep the slate clean. I need to be really good because that could ruin my image and my career, completely selfish. And many of these people are deceived. John Owen talks about this. They can part from some sins, but they'll keep others. And that's why ultimately worldly grief does not look to God with any hope for forgiveness. Because he does not see the center of the problem as a sin against God. So it is not God that he looks to in order to make things right. And that's why he sees forgiveness and atonement through Jesus' death. Why would he see that from a God who he has not offended? And it reminds us of Richard Niebuhr said about liberal preaching in his day that it, it preached a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Completely devoid of the gospel. This is the person who believes they can make themselves right. And they can atone for it by apologizing or covering it up or paying somebody off. And Paul says, this is a sorrow that produces death. This is the person who's deceived and thinks that they're right with their fellow man or thinks they're right with God. It does not lead to life. But praise be to our merciful God. Godly grief does. It leads to life. It leads to salvation. And it leads us to throw ourselves upon Christ and to rest upon him. And if you want to hear about that story, you need to come back this evening. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and our Father, we thank you for this time together and the ways in which you are teaching us some of these lessons are painful. And we realize there's much ground that needs to be gained in terms of the practice of repentance, not just thinking upon it, but doing it. And becoming acquainted again with sorrow over sin. We pray, Father, that you would help us in this grace for ourselves, but also, Father, that it would continue to engender in us a sympathy for fellow travelers who are Christians, especially those who struggle with sin. That because we ourselves never lose touch with this need for constant repentance before you and that we marvel at the fact, the way in which you have held back us committing greater sins. Every thought of lust would commit adultery if it could. Every thought of covenanting would steal if it could, but you have held us back. And we find no room in our hearts to judge brothers and sisters who have failed because we see the same thing in ourselves. And so, Father, as we repent of our sin, grant us this love and compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. And grant us humility to see ourselves as we should. But, Father, never, ever, outside of Christ, never separate from Christ, never abandoned by Christ, but always in Christ. Help us in these things. Help us to continue to learn and to grow. And all this for the benefit of those around us, but most of all, for the glory of the great King himself, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.